everybody! Hi! I'm Grace. And I'm Joy. And this is Murder by Murder, a history of the world as told in 225 murders. Yeah! Welcome back! We're back! We missed another week, even though we promised that we wouldn't. But this seems to be a recurring theme with us, so maybe we should just change our slogan to episodes every other week instead of weekly? Who knows? If we're being honest with ourselves? Well, who knows? Like, school can change things, so. That's true. We Next don't. semester, things could definitely change. We have no idea. We we don't know what will happen. We don't. We don't. Mm-mm. You're on this journey just with as us. much as we are. Yeah. So, it's very <laughs> exciting. <laughs> All right. So, we actually have a pretty big case today, and I'm excited to get into it. But before we do, do you have any housekeeping that we need to cover? Um, I don't think so. I mean, I think we have two new countries listening. Yes. Um, Iran and Pakistan. (gasps) Welcome! Hello, if you're listening. Um, yeah. And I think we got a new follower, but besides that, I haven't seen much else (laughs) on our end, so. Hooray! Well, you know what? We love all of our followers and we we love all of our listeners, be though few that you are, you are small but mighty, and we love you. Yes. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so, without further ado, um, let's just get into it, shall we? Sure. To start off, as always, we're going to begin with just a quick trigger warning. This case involves murder. I would be con- I would be a little bit concerned if it yep. didn't and because of the nature of the show. Uh, yes, and <laughs> other than that, nothing nothing graphic. So really, yeah. All right. Huh. Decided to be pretty tame this episode. Fair enough. But it's still a cool case. Promise. Yeah. There's a lot of like fun espionage here. So I don't, if you have a problem <gasps> with espionage, then like, yes. uh, we'll see you next episode. But uh, if not, hopefully you don't. Please stick around. Yeah. So yeah. today, we are, we are doing the beautiful country of Hungary. So it is a Central <laughs> European country. The language is very unique, uh, and so I am going to do my best, um, but I make no promises. Yeah. Um, they, should, they should know that by now. Yeah, they should. <laughs> <laughs> that we uh, try. Yeah, but for all our new listeners, I do my best. I fail a lot. Um... Hungary is one of Europe's oldest countries. It was founded in 896. Dang. And that was in, like, 800 BC. Yeah. So, very, very cool. That was a long time ago. A long time ago, yep. It's, like, way mm-hmm. long ago. Yep. And it's really interesting because um, Hungary was actually anti-Soviet communism, so what that means is, like, the Soviet Union was involved in Hungarian politics, and you can see that, uh, you know, there is some communist rule around Hungarian cities, but Hungarians from the Cold War were incredibly anti-communist, mm-hmm. which is just really interesting. And because of that, they were the first country to reopen their borders to Western Europe in 1989 at the end of the Cold War. All right. Um This is not relevant to our story, but it's a fun fact that I found out that I want to share with you. Hungarian cowboys exist. Okay. They are, for a lot of centuries, Hungarians got around on horseback. Nice. Um, And there are still Hungarian cowboys that exist. 
just like their ancestors. And they're trained to sit, their horses are trained to sit like dogs with riders on their back. Okay. And they're also trained to lay flat on the ground. Kind of like a cat. Yeah. It's really cool. Yeah. (laughs) Our horses can't do that. No, no, they cannot. Um, The largest synagogue in Europe is found in Budapest, um, which Budapest was actually created when three cities merged, Mm -hmm. which is kind of cool. It wasn't just one big city in the beginning. And Hungary is home to the largest lake in Central Europe. Cool. And if you ever get a chance, you should try the national dish, which is called goulash. Um, Definitely heard of that before. Yes. It's basically like a thick veggie and beef stew. And it's known for this, like, unique red coloring because it has a lot of paprika, because paprika is grown all over Hungary, mm. and so it's used in almost every meal. Okay. You would die there. I would. <laughs> so for those of you who don't know, I am allergic to pepper, and I don't know who knew this, but, like, paprika and red pepper flakes and stuff is made up of ground peppers. Yeah. Like, I didn't know that. Uh-huh. I learned that the hard way. Yes. I was there. Yeah, it was not cute. Anyways. She's very upset. <laughs> I'm very upset because this looks delicious. So anyways, well, you should all try it. It looks really good. You would die if you ate it, though. Yeah, I would die, but you wouldn't die, so you can enjoy it for me. Yeah. Um. <laughs> also, this is like a fun cultural fact. You know how it's... um. You don't really cross your ankles or your legs in Kuwait? I don't remember that, but sure. Okay. Um, don't clink your glasses. Really? Mm-hmm. Specifically, your beer glasses. Because <laughs> the Hungarians revolted against the Habsburgs in 1848. They were defeated. Thirteen Hungarian generals were publicly executed Oof. afterwards. And after each execution, the Austrians and those in the Habsburg army would clink their beer glasses in celebration. And so because of that, the the Hungarians have vowed not to clink their glasses in opposition for 150 years. So how long has it been? Uh, It's been more than 150 years, but most people still don't do it. Out of spite. Okay. I love it. We would probably get arrested on probably. accident. <laughs> yeah, probably. And, this is something kind of interesting. Um, the government has a list of pre-approved names that ch- that parents can use when getting ready to name their children. So they only have a list of yep. names. It's a way to like preserve Hungarian culture and protect children okay. from having, quote, silly names that would make their life more difficult. Well, do we know any of the names on this list? Um. Let me check in a section. But, uh, you can apply to have a name that's not on the list, but it would have to be considered appropriate by Hungarian officials. And the Rubik's Cube was invented by Hungarians. Nice. So there's, like, Andreas Istvan... Geza, Laszlo, Tamas, Catalin, Zoltan, Bela. Zoltan? Yeah. 
Okay. It was the name of um, Dracula's dog. Really? Yeah. Did not know that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Zoltan Kodaly was also a significant composer in Hungarian folk music. Nice. It's a very it's a very common Hungarian boy's name. It means life. Cool. Yeah, it's it's actually a very beautiful name. I like it. Okay. Questions, comments, concerns? No. Nope. Alright, let's get into it. Today we are covering the murder of Gertrude of Morania. Okay. So Gertrude was born into the house of Andax, um, the daughter of Berthold, the Duke of Morania. Um, and she, the Morania is like a fiefdom in the Holy Roman Emperor, Empire. Okay. And it was in the neighborhood of Dalmatia, which belonged to Croatia. Okay. Which we have done. Yes, we have done our episode on Croatia. You should go listen to it. You, you should. Yep. Um, Berthold's younger brother, Andrew, was constantly rebelling against him. Um, and following a victory against the king, he forced uh, Emmerich, the ruler of Croatia and Dalmatia, he forced Emmerich to basically give Croatia and Dalmatia as appendage to him in 1197, so basically as reparations and as spoils of war. All right. So, Andrew administered the provinces as an independent monarch. Okay. And even though Emmerich defeated his brother after another conspiracy in 1199, Andrew was allowed to return to his his duties as a duke in All right. 1200. Nice. So, Andrew married Gertrude of Morania sometime between 1200 and 1203. And his father-in-law, Berthold... Um, had extensive land all over the Holy Roman Empire. And Gertrude's influence and political involvement before even being married to Andrew were shown by the fact that when Emmerich defeated his brother again in 1203, he found it necessary to send Gertrude back to her native land of Morania because she was going to cause some problems. Mm. So Andrew II ascended the Hungarian throne in 1205, and as queen consort, Gertrude had unusual but not completely unheard of influence over governmental affairs. Okay. Um, Theodoric of Apolda emphasizes Gertrude's masculine characteristics. It was it was basically if a woman was headstrong and feisty, she was considered to be manly. Yeah. Um, and that was a compliment, I guess guess i guess i don't know <laughs> um and gertrude exercised power during the king's absence on military campaigns mm-hmm. so for example when andrew ii launched a campaign against the cuman chieftain gubasal in bulgaria gertrude basically presided over judicial activity uh in a lawsuit between abbot uros of pananhalma and the castle serfs of presburg which is in present-day slovakia Next. Around 1212 or 1213. Cool. However, she kind of stirred up favoritism towards her German kinsmen mm. and courtiers. Andrew's younger brother, uh, Berthold, was appointed the Archbishop of Kaloska. This is a different Berthold. 
1206 and was made the ban of Croatia and Dalmatia in 1209, so the leader, essentially. Yeah. And his two other brothers, Ekbert and Henry, fled to Hungary in 1208 after they were accused of participating in the murder of Philip, the king of the Germans. Yikes. Yep. So Andrew basically gave large cuts of land to Ekbert in the Spessig region in Slovakia, and his generosity towards his wife's German relatives and courtiers basically made the nobles really upset. Uh-huh. And according to historian Gula Christo, uh, the anonymous author of The Deeds of the Hungarians, uh, basically called the Germans from the Holy Roman Empire, um, he sarcastically mentioned that now the Romans graze on the goods of Hungary. However, it is important to note that there is no source for that because Gertrude never appointed German courtiers in her queenly court. Yeah. It is possible that the 26th article of the Golden Bull of 1222, which says that Hungarian properties cannot be given to foreigners, um, and basically says that foreigners can only get court positions if they stay in Hungary, because such people, quote, take the country's wealth abroad, reflect the negative experiences of Gertrude's favoritism, the few surviving royal donation letters from the period do not prove the mass acquisition of land by the Germans either, close quote. Mm, Gotcha. Right. So donations were considered, like, kind of insignificant gains compared to other gains of land during the period, right? Yeah. So, Andrew II departed for a new royal campaign against the Principality of Halk in the summer of 1213, and... During his absence, the Hungarian lords basically captured and murdered Gertrude and a bunch of her other courtiers. And we'll get into more of the details of this later. Right. But a lot of the details didn't come out until hundreds of years later. Yeah. As I'm not right? too surprised. Because we're dealing that. in the 11th century, right? Yeah. So. I think this is the oldest case that we've done then. I think it is. Yeah, I don't think we've done one this far back before. Yeah. So in the late 19th century, right? So. We're going, we're going 1800s now. Yeah. Late in the 1800s. Hungarian historian Gula Pahler was the first scholar who combined, who like... Compiled? Yes, that word. Um, <laughs> he um, basically carefully examined the series of events and the circumstances on which the murder took place. Yeah. And his findings have been since unanimously accepted by Hungarian historians. All right. So, according to Pollard, Queen Gertrude and her escort, also attended by her brother Archbishop Berthold and the reigning Austrian Duke Leopold VI. No. Yes, the sixth. <laughs> uh, Roman numerals, guys. They're hard. Nomen ruminals. Nomen ruminals. <laughs> They were hunting in the Pillis Hills in late September 1213. We don't have an exact date for this. Um, and a group of Hungarian lords broke into the queen's tent. Broke into a tent. They, they took over the tent <laughs> and they assassinated her. Partly for political reasons, mostly because of personal grievances. Yeah. One of the perpetrators was the queen's former confidant, Peter, the son of Tor. Ooh brothers 
Simon Coxiex and Michael Coxiex, and Simon's son-in-law of Palantine Bankbarkalan. It is possible that the Palantine himself and John, Archbishop of um, Estergom, were also involved in planning the conspiracy. All right. But they kind of remained in, like, the background at the time of the assassination. Yeah. But Gertrude was brutally killed, and Berthold and Leopold were physically assaulted, but then released and managed to flee the scene. So, the contemporary and near-contemporary sources, right, so Paolo would be declared a near-contemporary source because he was kind of far back, but not so far back that he was there at the event. Right. Um, They placed the assassination in many different years within a wide range between 1200 and 1218, right? So there's a, a big range of time that we're working with here in which a lot of stuff could have happened. True. So... That's part of what makes this case so complicated. So if you're if you're at all confused, me too, because this was difficult for me to follow and break down. So we're yeah. we're gonna do our best. Because um, records back then are hard. Yes, <laughs> but we do know that Gertrude was alive in 1211 because she sent her daughter Elizabeth with a very substantial dowry to get married to the Landgrivat of Thuringia that year. Okay. However. Her widower, Andrew II, mourned her death with his two surviving uh, children, and he issued royal charters in 1214. Okay. So because of that, most narrative sources would place the date of the murder at the year 1213, which is what we said earlier. Okay. Fair enough. Uh, Historian Thomas Cormandy accepted this year because the majority of the works are like the earliest and like most authentic records yeah. that we have including the Annals of Gotwig and the Annals of Salzburg. Thir- uh, 1213 is the only year that appears in works that cannot be compared or related physiologically which makes it very very probable and according to historians beyond a doubt that the murder probably took place at that time. Yeah. Only three sources actually mention the proper date of the murder. So a 15th century section of a Bavarian source in the founders of the Monastery of Diesen uh, refers to the date as the 28th of September, but it lists the year as 1200 and therefore cannot be authentic. Mm. The Annals of the Dominicans of Vienna from the late 13th century uh, preserved the date as 28th of September without adding the year. Okay. So who knows? Helpful. And then um, historian Laszlo Vesprami uh, accepted the date as authentic because the annals also used um, something called necrologies as sources. Okay. And... Uh, necrologies are basically, like, it's like an obituary notice. Okay. So that always focuses on the specific month and day instead of the year. Okay. So, instead we would look at the year that it was issued, Uh which was in 1213. Gotcha. Therefore, this is probably authentic, according to historian 
Las Lobas Pro Me. Okay. So necrology is always focused on the specific month and day instead of the year. Okay. So because of that, this is probably authentic because it was issued in the year 1213. Gotcha. And then, oh, I'm going to butcher this. This is going to be bad. Um, <laughs> the Aschaffenbergi Salterium, uh, which was made for Gertrude of Aldenburg, who was the queen's granddaughter, okay. listed the time of death um, accordingly that Queen Gertrude died on the 28th of September, year is not given. Right. So the three unrelated sources all together confirm that the assassination occurred on September 28th, 1213. All right. That's a lot of work to find out the date that yeah. somebody died, but, you know, that's what it takes, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so this year that would be like 810 years. Yeah. Since she passed. Since she passed. Is that crazy? Yeah. Strange, the passage of time. Literally, it's not real. <laughs> time isn't real. It doesn't exist. Yeah. <laughs> so, the... These three narrations write that Gertrude was killed in her tent, and the queen was buried in the Pillis Abbey. And then, Gyola Pollard said that the assassination took place nearby the Pillis Royal Forest on the occasion of the royal hunting. And we know that it did happen on a royal hunting. And historian Thomas Cormandy, who we talked about earlier, basically talked about the speculative nature of the data. He was like, other sources say that the queen was assassinated in her palace, in her bedroom, in the royal military camp, um, that she was murdered in a monastery, while accompanying her husband in the royal campaign. And there's a royal charter from 1214 that says, quote, a certain part of her body, close quote, was buried in Lelez. No. Lis. Yes, Lelez. <laughs> I'm trying my best. No, you're doing so good. Um, but <laughs> Pollard pushed back on this and argued that Andrew II, on his way to Halleck, was caught at Lelez by the messenger, by a messenger, not the messenger, brought news of her death, and then presented a piece of the queen's corpse as evidence. Oh. Which was then buried in Lelez. However, we have to understand, though, that that was a bit more common practice back then, yeah. because if your messenger just came up and was like, the queen has died, yeah, you know, you had no way of... Actually, of actually right. knowing, we don't have access to the. They didn't have access to the evidence that we have now. Now, so. But then, uh, Cormandy said that the non-transportable pieces of the queen were quickly buried in the Lelez monastery near which the assassination could have taken place. Okay. So. Fighting here, right? We don't yeah. actually know what happened, right? We say we say we know, and then we don't know. Yeah. Annoying, isn't it? Yep. Research is fun. It's like so many different cases. I know. In the world. I love it. <laughs> so, Peter, son of Tor, he was a former confidant of Gertrude, and he is the only for sure, for sure participant in the assassination. Okay. How dare he? One, yes. One of the earliest records, the manuscripts of the Annals of Salzburg, 
contain a quote that says, quote, Queen of the Hungarians was slaughtered by a certain Count Peter. Okay. When Bela IV, who's the eldest son of Andrew and Gertrude, donated Peter's former lands um, to an abbey, the king said that these estates were confiscated from Peter, who, quote, committed the crime of high treason by murdering our mother. Ah. And Hungarian royal charters refer to the brothers Simon and Michael Coxix as leading instigators of Gertrude's assassination. Mm. Okay. That doesn't necessarily mean that they killed her, per se, like, with their own hands, but were they there and probably started it? Yeah. Yeah. How so, good. yeah. Duke Bela gained power over the royal council. He started reclaiming King Andrew's land, and he forced his father to confiscate the estates of the noblemen who had plotted against his mother, um, like, 15 years earlier, right? So, Simon Coxix lost his lands and his villages in Transylvania, which Dennis Tomage and his clan claimed. Nice. And in his charter, Andrew II referred to Simon's active participation in the murder of his queen. Uh, he called Simon, quote, by a new and unheard of kind of wickedness and vileness, cruelly and armed for hateful machinations, conspiring with his accomplices, bloodthirsty and treacherous men, to the shame and dishonor of our royal crown, was involved with the death of a well-remembered Queen Gertrude, our dearest consort. Wow. Close quote. Hmm. Yeah. And, uh, this is actually important to point out, but, uh, the king here, Andrew II, is using the royal we. So when he says our royal concert, he's really saying, like, my royal concert, my yeah. dearest wife. So the land that was confiscated in 1228 could signify, like, retaliation mm -hmm. after, you know, an increased role in national politics by um, Bela and Coloman, who were the princes, um, in the early 1220s. Um, this is what Pollard argues. Now, Comendy, right? Back and forth. Yeah. He argued that it was unrealistic that Andrew II appointed Simon to be the baronial dignitary after the murder. Even after his few opportunities to punish the perpetrators. Yeah. As Pollard had claimed, right? And, as such, Simon was not considered among the assassination among the assassins of Gertrude immediately after the murder. He was mentioned as an armed participant in the act, and it was it's entirely likely that he became a victim of power and intrigue and was cons was accused out of conspiracy based on political reasons. Now, Simon's brother, Michael Coxix, also listed in the perpetrators in a royal charter by Ladislav IV from 1277. Jumping ahead here. Yeah. When he returned the, the lands to the sons of Denis Tomaj from Michael's descendants. Two royal charters from Bella IV narrate that Bank Barcalan had participated in the assassination. So in 1240, Bella IV donated Bank's former lands, which he had lost for, quote, his sin of high treason since he conspired, he, nah. he conspired to murder our dearest mother, Gertrude. He lost all his possessions, not exactly unjustly, 
for he would have deserved more severe revenge by the judgment that common sense had brought upon him. Close quote. Nice. Yep. <laughs> also, I think conspirated is a great new word. Thank you. Thank you very much. Like, it's a great spice of a conspiracy murder. I love it. Thank you. <laughs> a conspirator? Yeah. I love that. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> you made it. So be Thanks. proud. <laughs> However, Bunk still held court positions after the assassination, which questions the authenticity of right. the above accounts, right? So, Storian Poller considered that Bunk might have survived retaliation because Andrew II was not strong enough to punish one of the most powerful barons, while the main assassin, Peter, son of Tor, was executed. Mm -hmm. Now, according to Janos Karasjonsi, Bunk supported the conspiracy but did not mastermind the crime. And historian Eric Fugetti argued that Bunk was the most prestigious member of the scheme, and the following decades kind of magnified his role and made it bigger and bigger, and he sort of became the executor-in-chief of the assassination, mm -hmm. according to later narratives. Cormandy basically said that the late 19th century historiography incorrectly considered Andrew II as a weak ruler. And that Bunk was accused of involvement in the assassination sometime between 1222 and 1240. So, Simon Coxix, Michael Coxix, and Bunk's son-in-law, Simon. It is presumable that Bunk also became a victim of power intrigues. While Peter, son of Tor, had actually assassinated the queen, right? Mm -hmm. So, Cormandy is pushing that, like, you know, all of these wealthy, higher-up people are probably just victims of political intrigue and conspiracy to take down the richer people. Uh-huh. And they're all just, you know, basically being fall guys for Peter Tor, who was really the one who assassinated the queen. Whereas, um, Powler is arguing that, no, there's actually a lot more to this case, and more people are wrapped up in this than we could ever know. Yeah. So... Very complicated. Very complicated. <laughs> now, there is a royal charter from Duke Stephen in 1270. Um, he held the lands of Bunk's son-in-law, Simon. Okay. And those lands were confiscated before that and given to Duke Stephen. So he basically wrote down that the lands were confiscated from Simon and given to him and his family. Okay. And... Bunk's son-in-law was identified with Simon Coxix, but Poller proved that Simon Coxix had descendants. Bunk's son-in-law, Simon, died without issue in 1270, or before 1270. Okay. So Poller considered Simon among the killers, and his involvement caused his father-in-law's political downfall years later. Okay. Now, historian Vespremi argued that there's no record of Simon's active participation in the murder, and Cormandy emphasized that Simon's lands were given to the crown because of his death without issue. Okay. So because he died, didn't really have any descendants. Yeah. At least no male descendants. 
your lands would be returned to the crown. Yeah. So Corbin D is saying that, no, it actually didn't have anything to do with the assassination because he just died of natural causes and he didn't have any descendants. Not really. Um, then his lands just went back to the crown. That's just how it worked. Yeah. And you've definitely, like, heard of things like that happening. Yep. So. Yep. <sighs> now, there's a lot more, a lot more perpetrators that I could go over. I'm not going to. Fair enough. Because there's a lot. And I'm getting confused. And I'm sure you're getting confused. Definitely. Mm -hmm. <laughs> But do you understand, like, the basic gist of what, yes. what we've got going on? Yeah, I got right? it. We've got a lot of intrigue. we got a lot of espionage yeah. surrounding the murder of this one woman. Yep. Who was killed for essentially being too powerful and <laughs> having too much... Wit. Yeah. Smart. Yeah. Wit. Having too much wit. Having too much smart. Yep, yeah. That's what you said. Yep, that is yep. what I said. And I'm not taking uh, that. Yep, stand by it. There are four people who were present as eyewitnesses okay. to the assassination that okay. we know of. Yeah. And, again, due to different credibility, not all of them were present. For sure. Like, for sure it's ease. <laughs> Yay! <laughs> so, we have Archbishop Berthold, Gertrude's brother, as a key figure. Okay. And there's only one source that says that Berthold was present during the assassination. Okay. But Cormandy accepted this information as truth because Berthold uh, sent a letter um, uh, to Pope Innocent III, sent a letter from Pope Innocent III to Archbishop John of Estergom in January 1214, which refers to a physical ex assault on Berthold. Mm, okay. Um, which would line up with the murder. Yep. So... Okay. And according to the Pope's letter, many clergy and, and monks during, you know, times of rebellion and hardship would suffer physical injury. Um, and Pope Innocent instructed John to excommunicate the perpetrators who had done this to him. Okay. Um, we also have uh, 15th century historian Thomas Ebendorf who mentions the presence of the Austrian Duke Leopold VI. Okay. Um, D also accepted this information because it provides very detailed, like, accounts of the activities of the Duke. He supposedly arrived in Hungary, and then the assassins did intend to supposedly kill him. But D said that this is probably unlikely because the monks of the Admont Abbey, in which the Duke possessed the rights of patronage, were trying to increase the importance of Leopold, right? Mm -hmm. So, basically it says that basically what Cormandy is arguing is that because they were trying to kill her for political reasons and out of loyalty to the church, the fact that the monks were trying to make Leopold of higher standing in the church doesn't really make sense why they would want to kill him. Yeah. Now, 
there are a couple sources that say that Andrew II himself was present during the assassination. Mm. And okay. there's Why? one uh, Galician Volhynian chronicle which says that the real target was actually the king. Okay. But there is no sign of nationwide rebellion against the king in 1213. And the royal charters do not mention that the conspirators attempted to murder the king himself. Yeah. In which case, the punishments most likely would have been significantly higher for treason against the king. Yes. There are conspiracies against Andrew found from 1209 to 1210 and in 1214, but not in 1213. Okay. I'm sure people who are, like, trying to say, like, oh, the king was the real target... Thinking that, like, you know, a woman can never be a target. Yeah. Women aren't important enough to be targets. I don't know. This Not is, like, true. your conspiracy theory, like, play day. You must be having a great time. Kind of. There's a little too much <laughs> conspir- conspiring going on here. <laughs> but Sorry. yes, I am enjoying. <laughs> All right. So, let's talk about some of the motivations for this murder, right? Yeah. Before we've been operating on, like, vague political things, (laughs) right? Yeah. So, the Annals of Gottwig and other works basically say that the queen's pro-German attitude was the motive for her assassination. Okay. And there is, there is like side notes from Hungarian chroniclers that strengthen this standpoint, but there is no trace of like the beneficiary status of the Germans, which we talked about earlier, right? Mm -hmm. Now, the Austrian rhyming chronicle is the earliest known work, um, which basically presented the stor- this alleged story that Archbishop Berthold, Gertrude's brother, yeah. raped Bank Barcalon's wife. And this was the immediate cause of the assassination of the queen, who basically acted as a procuress in the quote-unquote adultery. Wow. Okay. Right? So, according to this, if we believe this story, Bunk actually led the conspirators and stabbed Gertrude. Personally. Okay. In which case, Peter was innocent. Yeah. Of stabbing her. Right. We know that. Of, of, of the actual... Of the act itself, right? If yeah. we're following this narrative. So, there's another chronicle that was presented by a Hungarian cleric. Uh, from around 1270, and this said that Bela IV was ordered to slaughter all participants of the assassination after he ascended to the Hungarian throne in 1235. Okay. And this, there's an annal that uses Bank's alleged German name, Prenger, and the exact assassination date, Hmm. which sort of gives a little bit credence to yeah. this story. Um, 
they emphasize the innocence of Gertrude, like, regarding the adultery between Bertold and Bunk's wife. First of all, all of it says that it's, like, adultery between Bertold and Bunk. Um, first of all, let's call it what it is. It's not adultery. It was rape. Yeah. Bertold raped Bunk's wife. Mm-hmm. Um, so, no. No. First of all, the only guilty person here is Bolch- is Bertold, in which case he should have been the one that they were killing, if we're following this narrative. Yep. Um, so, really, this is stupid, and I don't believe it. <laughs> this Fair enough. is my personal opinion, right? Fair enough. Is there a little bit of credence to it? Like, barely, but there's so much speculation around this case, like, as is, and yeah. I... I don't know. I just don't find this theory to be plausible, all things considered. Yeah, that's fair. So, I agree. Yep. So, we're almost done, don't worry. Oh, no, you're good. So, there is another chronicle, which we sort of mentioned this idea earlier, but that the real assassination target was King Andrew II. So historian Valent uh, Homan basically assumed that the conspirators were trying to oust Andrew from power and replace him with his heir, Bella, who at this point was seven years old. Now, you may be wondering why would they want to replace the king with a child? Well, child would be very young Uh and very malleable. Yeah. Very... Yep, they'd be able to control him. Yep. So. However, this doesn't make sense because Andrew led a campaign to Halleck during the assassination, so killing the queen would not have caused his downfall. Doesn't make sense. Doesn't work. Um, Nope. And so... They were trying to kill the king. Yep. So, yeah. I mean, they would have followed him to Halleck and killed him there. So what it really boils down to is most likely that because of Gertrude's active role in the government as a queen, the barons in the 1200s, the barons opposed her. Yeah. That sounds most likely to me. So it is entirely likely that personal revenge was the motivation for the assassination. And that Peter, who was the queen's confidant until early 19, uh, 1213, (laughs) Listen, I'm used to the cases from the 1900s. That's what we're doing. I know. (laughs) That they became involved in some sort of kerfuffle, and he wanted revenge against her, and both Pollard and Cormandy can agree on that. Yeah. So it's not surprising, because mm -hmm. it's the most likely, in my opinion. I agree. So, let's talk about the aftermath. So, Andrew II heard the news of his wife's murder, he immediately stopped the campaign and returned home. Oh. Um, by all sources that I could find, it was an arranged marriage, but the couple did have deep respect and, and yeah. love for each other. Um, which is always nice to hear about yeah. you know, love stories that did bloom in this era, because I feel like it's so rare to actually... Have, like, real love. Yeah, have real love back then. So. Yeah. Because everyone was just trying to get higher up in the world. Yep. Didn't yeah. really give him a chance to fall in love. Exactly. Exactly. So, I feel like, you know, it's really nice when you when you find this. Yeah. And things like that. So, he immediately stopped, returned home, immediately executed Peter. Yeah! Fourth, 
Um, in the should. autumn of 1312, he was executed and was, quote, impaled along with others. <laughs> <laughs> um, Peter and others were beheaded the night right after the assassination. Um, and there is one chronicle that says that Peter was executed with his wife and entire family the day after the assassination. Now, I personally think that's a bit harsh. Yeah, but I also wouldn't be surprised if that did happen. It's true. However, that's also only found in one source. Right. So I'm going to choose to believe that it's wrong. <laughs> yeah, I would too. But I'm saying if it happened to be true, I wouldn't have been that surprised. It's true, unfortunately. Very unfortunate. And, you know, Peter's lands were confiscated. Bella IV, who uh, became, who was now king, essentially. Yeah. Um, and as formally ascended to the throne in 1235 donated uh, Peter's lands and um, there's a royal charter from 1237 that confirms this narrative. Nice. Um, Peter's accomplices including Palatine Bunk did not receive severe punishments because of the current political climate and because of Andrew's power and stability. Yeah. So Duke Bella son of Andrew and Gertrude took revenge after he was appointed the Duke of Transylvania and started to revise his father's policy, right? So in 1228, he confiscated the estates of Bunk and the Coxix brothers who had plotted against his mother. And again, Cormandy believes that that was all like victims of power intrigue and political purges. Mm. I don't know. Who knows? Um, Gertrude was buried in the Pillis Abbey and other, another part of her body was buried in the monastery of Leles. Um, Andrew II ordered that two monastery priests pray for his wife's spiritual salvation. Aww. And the ruins of her tomb were discovered during the excavations uh, by Laszlo Gerovich in the Pillis Abbey between 1967 and 1982. And one of the excavated skeletons, that of a 30 to 40 year old woman, um, may be Gertrude's remains. Mm. Shortly after her assassination, Andrew II married Yolanda of Courtenay in February of 1215. Because kings gotta remarry. Yep, they do. Um, he did not want his new wife to have a governmental role because Fair. he experienced sharp opposition from the Hungarian elite. Okay. He left Hungary to fight in the Fifth Crusade from 1217 to 1218, and he entrusted the regency to Archbishop John and Palatine uh, Julius Khan instead of Yolanda, who remained passive in political matters. Mm -hmm. And Andrew's third wife, after uh, Yolanda's death, Beatrice Dest, uh, Dest had a, a very similar role. Yeah. Um, according to uh, Guala Cristo, Gertrude's unpopular pro-German attitude was most likely what contributed to her downfall, and it also negatively affected the portrayal of Blessed Gisela, who was the first Hungarian, who was the consort of the first Hungarian king, Saint Stephen, mm -hmm. in the hung in the contemporary Hungarian chronicles, which described Gertrude's activity, right? Mm -hmm. Because it says that Gisela was, quote, determined to appoint as the king's brother 
Peter the German, or rather Venetian, with the intention that Queen Gisela might then, according to her desire, fulfill all the impulses of her will, and that the Kingdom of Hungary might lose its liberty and be subjected without hindrance to the dominion of Germans. So she had, like, a really tense relationship with Stephen's nephew and his successor, Peter. Yeah. And so to avoid persecution, the Chronicles narrated Gertrude's pro-German attitude inserted between the events of the 11th century. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. So the death of Gertrude and all of the negative experiences, quote-unquote, that were associated with her basically resulted in the decline of this whole idea of like a separate queenly court with courtiers yeah. and on all of that in 13th century Hungarians. And then in uh, 1298, um, laws said that only Hungarian-born barons could hold positions and offices mm. in the Queen's court, which is really unfortunate. Yeah. That is sad. Mm-hmm. But uh, since then, there have been many fictionalized retellings of the assassination. Um, huh. The story... Is very fictionalized and yeah. highly, very likely inaccurate Probably. in a lot of portrayals because there's really no reliable sources Yeah, on the details of the assassination, right? There's no proof that Gertrude was exploitative or negligent as a regent. There's actually a lot of reports that she was highly effective as regent. Yeah. And as even though, you know, Bank was a real person, right? There's no report that he himself murdered the the queen there's no report that he even had a wife yeah so you know yeah it's crazy but yeah that concludes the really complicated really <laughs> unknown and really sad story of gertrude of Morenia, who was a very powerful woman whose life was cut short because the powerful men in her life were scared of her yeah. Good. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> no, like, it was a good episode. Like, this is good. Okay. Like, I enjoyed. Yeah. So, lots of really cool, you know, things that we learned today. I sincerely hope that you enjoyed this episode. It was easily one of the hardest episodes that I've ever had to research for. I but <laughs> I sincerely enjoyed it. I think that Gertrude was an incredible woman, that her story deserves to be told, and that, you know, she's one of those people that I wish we knew more about. Yeah. I really wish we knew more, more about her, right? And that's why we do this, this podcast. That's why we tell these stories. That's why it's so important, and yeah. Yeah. So you can reach out to us on Instagram at Murder by Murder Podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Murder by Murder Podcast, or you can reach out to us by email at Murder by Murder Podcast at gmail.com, and we will respond to you. We will. We really want to hear from you guys. Great. We mean it. Like, we actually mean it. <laughs> so. <laughs> All right. We hope you keep listening. Bye, guys. Bye. Thank you.